Hi and welcome back to our podcast. This is not the way. This is episode two. My name is Chris. And well, today, Courtney, what do we want to explore a bit further? What we want to explore today is robo-debt. Now, you may or may not have heard of robo-debt, but if you're an Australian, then this is something that has now reached Royal Commission levels. And we're going to explore this with a little bit of a reference to uh, Kidder's ethics approach to resolving ethical dilemmas. So, Chris, tell me about robo-debt and how does it make you feel? Uh, well, the, the feeling part is easy. It makes me feel very, very angry, extremely angry. And I get angry with government on pretty much a daily basis. Um, this one seriously pisses me off. So robo-debt, which is a terrible name as well, but that's, that's what the journalist created and grabbed onto, is the government decided, uh, a liberal government, but could have been, I guess, either, that they wanted to catch people who are on welfare who were also working. You get welfare, if you work, you can't have as much welfare. If you get a certain amount of salary, uh, income, you can't have any of that extra welfare. Okay, fine. They decided that they would use something called income averaging. The, the basic example is you receive welfare for six months of a financial year, and then you get a job, fantastic and that job earns you uh, $60,000 for the rest of the financial year for six month period. Income averaging just says, okay, across the whole financial year, what did you earn? You earned $60,000. Therefore, should you have got a certain amount of welfare after that? Oh, maybe, but only this much. But basically, it's completely unfair because you were unemployed, you received some welfare, then you're employed, you don't for that period. They averaged it a whole across the whole lot and said, you owe us So they've two, gone back five, in time ten. to a time when you didn't actually know. Yeah, they, they, yeah. yeah exactly. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they pretty much went back in time. It, it was ludicrous. It seems that they didn't just do it, but they did it against sound advice. They did against sound advice that said it's illegal. But even that aside, it was completely unethical. And you talked about the link to Rushworth Kidder's philosophy in terms of ethics. That's about four dilemmas. And I thought this is an interesting example because it, it broke probably most of them. The dilemmas are, so you understand, truth versus loyalty. In other words, you are there and your friend breaks the window. You're a teenager and they break the window in some house. Um, do you tell on them or do you protect them? Truth versus loyalty. Individual versus group. Uh, example, the Chernobyl disaster, do you send in the team to clear all the radioactive graphite knowing that those every single person will die horribly or do you risk the whole community? Uh, short term versus long term, the benefits of those two, justice versus mercy. Uh, I, I love so my example of justice that. Justice versus mercy, That's see I see that one shining through. Is truth versus loyalty relevant here? Only in the aspect when it came out some of these ministers started to say, oh yeah, I kind of thought there could have been an issue here, but we wanted to have cabinet solidarity. We wanted to make sure that everyone in cabinet agreed together. And so I didn't particularly want to, to question. 
So you blame it on committee. You say, oh, we sent it to a committee. It's not my fault. I wash my hands of it. Absolutely. That's, that's it, it was pathetic. Just terrible. Um, and, and the only reason it's come out, as you said, that it was a Royal Commission where people are finally forced to tell things under, under oath. So normally I would have thought that dilemma should not have occurred in this case, but absolutely. And I suppose, you know, short term versus long term, anything to do with political parties and government is about the next election cycle. But your other one is, is absolutely right. Justice versus mercy. Their idea of we are the welfare cop on the beat, seeking justice, getting money back off these people who are, you know, basically saying welfare scum. And I know you said it could have been implemented by the political party, but I I get a sense that the political party that was involved often has a perspective of people on welfare as they, they should just get a job or their bums or their bludgers. So I think it's more likely that it would have come from that from the liberal side of, of politics uh, because there is more of a justice mindset than a mercy mindset. Yeah, yeah I think so. Um, the only other link I wanted to make really is uh, about a woman called Judith Schuyler and she was a political philosopher, a really interesting woman and she wrote a book called Ordinary Vices and she talked about these five vices. Cruelty, hypocrisy, snobbery, betrayal, and misanthropy. And I was thinking about the other day because her point is basically that cruelty is the one vice that if we're going to focus on one of the five is is the most important. If we decide to be cruel in our society, we have truly lost our way. Hypocrisy is an issue, but we are all hypocritical. The fact that people say, we can't stand the idea of a politician being hypocritical is almost really a hypocritical yeah. uh, approach we, to it. We kind of know. They've got to sell us a story and we know that they've got vested interests. We get that. I think we can handle someone being hypocritical or full of hubris or a bit proud or anything. But, yeah, or but being snob. cruel... People will betray people. Yeah. But cruelty is... is and in this example, this really was cruelty. Yeah. Th- Let's th- punish these, these weak people who are in a, not in a position of power, we, we squash them further. That's, yeah. That seems to happen. I, look, there's a bit of a segue into the US politics, I think, that we, we can see there. There, there seems to be a, a strong focus on cruelty in the last five, six years. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. The example that um, David Runciman, person I almost have a man crush on, a political <laughs> philosopher, he gives about... Uh, talking about uh, Schuyler and these vices, is in the US, Donald Trump, when he came to, or not to power, just came to the forefront in, uh, in politics. He is someone that is actually cruel. He is both cruel in public and by all accounts, he's cruel in his personal life. Cruel to the people around him. Cruel to the people that were working for him when he was president. And he is really not hypocritical because he doesn't so much say one thing and do the other like he he does not he just does what he wants at all times. he doesn't he doesn't care about lying he yeah. does not actually pretend the point of this though is yeah that yeah. is such a move um to to be angry with politicians about hypocrisy is probably a better thing because in the end we have to accept that they have a certain level of hypocrisy we have to vote them in one way or the yeah. other and he flipped it on his head by saying, I am what I am. And people went, oh, that's fantastic. You're so true to your word. Yeah. True, cruel, 
bastard. Yeah. True, <laughs> true and cruel. And, and, and the and problem is that that attracts its own group of people and, and people who are frustrated. And you see it sometimes if a kid has a bad day at school, they come home and, and they look for the weakest thing around them. So they go kick the dog. There's a, there's a family hierarchy when, when people have issues and they can't deal with the person causing trouble, they take it out somewhere else. So often road rage, another example, when you're swearing and cursing at the person in front of you, something else went wrong earlier in your day where you were powerless and now you're trying to, to take that out. So, so this cruelty comes from, from not having power. Are we, are we seeing in Australia, do you think cruelty more across the spectrum or is robo-debt really just this one area that it's come to light? God, I hope it is just the one area. I think it's certainly taken even the average punter by surprise that they were willing to implement a policy like that, defend it, knowing full well it was, as I said earlier, not, not just illegal, but it was cruel and it was totally unfair. Uh, you know, a report's been handed down whether anyone will face any real repercussions like a criminal conviction. They, they talked about criminal. It was a criminal level um, behaviour that's taken place. So it's very severe. Yeah. Um, I think people on the right side of politics will, will, will defend it. I don't think you will get rid of their view of welfare people uh, are cheats and just need to pull their socks up and we shouldn't give them so much money. I don't think yeah. they're going to change on that. But perhaps overall the, the public will shift a little bit more to you can't, you can't have these sorts of policies. That is over the line. Mm. Um, I, I think it would be very risky for any political party to bring in something uh, with a public relations exercise that is that Cruel. And that, for me, that brings in that short-term versus long-term yeah, thing. It, yeah. it, it was all about the, the short-term win now. It's caused some pretty strong consequences for a lot of people, but it's also made them all look incredibly foolish and aggressive and nasty as well. So it, it didn't really help them in the end as a policy. So it, it's surprising to see the lack of thought that went into doing something so aggressive. Yeah, I hope one day some of those ministers in their own private time actually reflect on this and think that was that was overboard. Yeah, that was that was so far beyond what I should have stood for to be a, an ethical person and actually have some goddamn morals. I, I'd love to see a little bit of nuance. There, there are dull bludgers. So what? Okay, they exist, but there are also people who need welfare, and we support them because we live in a really good community or society that that seems to balance yes we have some capitalism but we have a welfare state as well we protect people that need protecting now you know you can go to the u.s and that much more hardcore you can go to some other countries where that you know the scandinavian countries a lot more welfare we well you know i quite like the balance in australia but you would think with with data collection with the internet with ai they could be a lot more targeted and find the individuals that are causing this trouble rather than a blanket policy that treats everyone as scum. Quite possibly. Um, again, we're at that stage with artificial intelligence where it's still going to make some horrendous mistakes if you use it in that way. Um, but I'm, I'm sure there'll be a whole bunch of consultants yeah. from PwC with the tech department telling them how they can implement something amazing to hone in and, and have that amazing accuracy of just nailing that Isn't that great? Individual. And, and I, I have to ask, were the accountants involved in any way? Did they help the government with this process? I, I don't know. I think a lot of the Royal Commission focused on the two departments and it focused 
again, and we talked about this in a previous episode, it, it focused on this issue of public servants being beholden to political ideology. And as soon as that happens, you're, you're screwed. Yep. The, the point of being a public servant is you, you serve the public and therefore you have to have some independence and you have to provide frank and fearless advice. And so, of course, all these politicians will now claim, no, that's what I want. I want frank and fearless advice. Yeah, frank uh, and fearless. So, so just to add to that, so the accountants were involved. And that oh, was, uh, so you've got to, out of the big four, who would you pick? at the moment that would probably be forefront of uh, getting in trouble here. <laughs> well, I could only I could only say it's likely to be uh, <laughs> likely to be PWC hey, and that's got- because they had to repay uh, a piddly little contract of just under a million dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, for their involvement in providing advice. On well, this. isn't that fantastic that the accountants who are there to uphold the public interest, you know, that's their, maybe they thought this was in the public interest to harass us, uh, a group of people who are not really able to defend themselves. But they, they paid back the, the million dollars roughly. So that, that's really nice. So uh, thanks. <laughs> thanks, accountants, for helping keep our profession, you know, yes. look upright. Pay back a million of the 10 billion that they've earned over the last <laughs> 10 years. So, so then, on the wicked problem in this case, RoboDebt was was ugly and disgusting. But the the broader question is, how do we provide welfare to those who need it without uh, encouraging people into a moral hazard type situation? If you give too much welfare, there's no incentive to work. You take away the welfare, and yes, they're very incentivized, but they're also traumatized. How do we how do we get that balance right? That is a wicked problem. I think some of it comes around the services that have to complement welfare provided, economic welfare provided. Um, I don't have enough experience in not-for-profit. I I volunteer, for instance, and uh, make sure that people get food packages. Those people that turn up, they are not dole bludgers. Uh, What we've noticed in recent times with the, the inflationary pressure and the cost of living crisis, as they love to say, is that people that you wouldn't normally expect are turning up to come and get those food packages. And again, you don't look at them and say, oh, hang on, you, you turned up in a car and that car looks less than 10 years old. You're, you're just here to, to steal the food. No, they've got problems as well. The difficult thing is, and if you talk to the community services sector, is providing all the services around that, providing the other support around making sure that their kids are attending school, good attendance rates, providing the support, perhaps even around things like nutrition, but around um, work and employment opportunities. And when you start to have a more holistic approach, there is a chance that you can get some sustainable change. So yes, I agree that just just handing out money alone uh, will not shift the dial enough. But the idea of not handing out any money is actually just cruel. Uh, I agree. And the reality is we're sitting at full employment. Most people are working. Most people do not enjoy not working. It's actually very disempowering. Uh, And I would rather a few people get away with being a bit dodgy than having a policy that's brutal to everyone. Absolutely. Absolutely. We come back to this issue of income inequality that has grown in Australia and continues to grow at quite a rapid rate. 
And if we keep going down that path, we are going to become a lot more like America, where the rich are filthy rich and the poor are so, so far behind. I think what I've always struggled with is if you have all that money, uh, why do you care so much if the people that don't, don't get some through the taxes that you pay? Uh, and it's just the more you get, the more protective of it you Absolutely. are. Absolutely, because success, you are to keep success isn't an, a number. Like I, I am on 82, so I'm successful. Success is comparative. So therefore, if you're in a workplace and you're on $80,000 a year, you feel fantastic until you find out the person sitting next to you who you think is an idiot is on $5,000 more. And yeah. all of a sudden you're underpaid and you're angry because we're a pecking order humanity. We, we rank ourselves. We determine where we fit in the hierarchy and when something isn't right, we feel dislocated. Yeah. If your competitor makes a whole bunch of rockets to go to space as part of their business, you make your own rocket shaped like a penis to go to space even quicker than him. Send yourself up there. It's idiotic. These, these people have so much money and yet... They, their, their whole desire is to, to basically just outdo each other. That's yep. it. Well, one of my favourites is when uh, we had a train line uh, in Western Australia, northern, northern Western Australia, that ran from the mines to the port. And one of our mining companies refused to let the other mining company access it and wanted them to build a train line right next to it. So we get these complete absurdities where our clever, upright, smartest people in the nation are running companies and going to court and chewing up resources to compete about, you need to build two train lines, one next to the other. So right. what, what you end up seeing is that we call ourselves grown-ups, but we're really still just kids in the playground. <laughs> yeah, yes, quite possibly. I don't know. I hope, I hope robo-debt is a, is a blip on the way that our government reacts. And perhaps, yeah, out of it, the public will take a little bit more notice and will be more skeptical professional skepticism isn't that one of the the things an accountant should consider it would be it would be great i think most people are so busy on tiktok they wouldn't have a clue what's going on <laughs> in australia right now and other people think that skeptics are, are just people that are you know de bono black hats ever de bono's book about the people that just say it won't work it won't work and it's not that at all skeptics a skeptical person is someone that questions to make sure that they understand actually all of the the issues in play there's nothing there's nothing wrong doing it but again if you create more and more income inequality and you create a class of people that are relatively financially they're quite fat um they won't be that skeptical you capture those people and and that's what governments have been able to do and what you'll find is no one sits down in a room you know in a darkened room and everyone's smoking and in the shadows going how do we create income inequality what happens is it's it's a hundred little policy decisions which all added up create it so so people talk about the gig economy and it's great you know you've got uber eats and uber's driving you around and all these people scooting around the city on bicycles handing over food so in some parts, it's, it's great to see a vibrancy. But the problem is these are exploitable workers. They, they're hardly protected. They're not really treated as employees. They're often not insured. Yep. There's a gray space. Now, the government quite likes this because they are lower cost. So it makes the economy work because they're doing work for next to nothing. But they are vulnerable and they can be exploited. They often, you know, they might be on a visa of some sort. So then you can make them work 40 hours and then you pay them 20 yep. and threaten them with uh, being deported. So we are doing lots and lots of little policies that create income inequality by having less protections for the poor and the vulnerable. 
and yet the wealthier are well sorted, well protected. That yeah, and the middle class have grown and I think just become a bit more apathetic about it all. As long as it's not in my backyard, Jack, I I may be okay with this. Yeah. I, I will ignore this. People to some tolerate extent. that a lot more, but what's coming? And we're, we're on the cusp. I mean, we've had a lot of interest rate rises, but we haven't seen the full effect because there's a lot of people on fixed rate mortgages that are going to tip over in the next three to six months into variable. And those people will switch from being slightly more wealthy because they're paying 2% interest on their mortgage to paying 7%. They're not going to be wealthy anymore. They're going to be the financially disadvantaged. So they're going to switch sides and there's going to be a lot more advocates for those struggling because there will be more people struggling. I'm so struggling to feel, feel sorry for some of them. You can't expect everyone to be sensible. That's why we have superannuation. If you said to each person, you need to save for your retirement, yes, true. eight people would in the whole of Australia. And everyone else would say, <laughs> I've run out of cash. I need a pension. It, it doesn't work. No, it doesn't. No. And if we were French, uh, we'd all then go and riot and burn down. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, the French town. are fantastic. So what I, that's a great link to this fellow. There's an Australian fellow and an indigenous guy. And he said, uh, I deserved the pension earlier, a couple of years earlier than everyone else, because indigenous people have a lower life expectancy. So therefore, we should get the pension earlier. Otherwise, we're missing out on the pension. So what, what do you think about uh, Uncle Dennis's case and which has been, I think, rejected by the federal court. It was rejected. Yeah. So he, he asked to get his pension earlier because Indigenous people uh, die earlier. And, mm-hmm. you know, I thought about this for a long, long time. And in some sense, it's a wicked problem because we have a reality that the life expectancies are different and the pension is there to support you. So I was like, well, you know, that's actually quite a fair argument. You could ask for that. Yeah, I can't afford it. And then I went, no, I'm not really for it um, because... The point of the pension is where I got stuck on. And I thought, why do we need a pension anymore? We're supposed to have superannuation. We're supposed to help people save for it and give them opportunities. So I was thinking, this is like putting the Band-Aid on the problem. You've got to the end of your life and you have no money. Let's give you some cash. It's like, how can we make sure that doesn't happen in the first place? Yeah, they don't have superannuation because they, uh, in many cases, are unfairly discriminated against in terms of getting a salary. You need a salary for an employer to, yeah. to pay the 10.5%. Yeah. It, it's, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a wicked problem. And, and that would be harsh. I, would, I wouldn't say, oh, you don't get a pension. Um, you should have done this earlier because society wasn't structured to support that. But what can we do now for the future? How can we make yeah. sure that people... The, the great thing would be, you don't need a pension. We're going to set up the structures so that you're in the economy. And, you, you know, I like they've lifted super to 11%. Fantastic. Keep lifting it because, you know... The, although I'm a little bit right-leaning, um, I also think people need a little bit more support and bossing around and government telling them to save 11%. absolutely fantastic because they can't save it themselves. I think with this particular case and, um, and Uncle Dennis, I fell straight away into the trap of not considering it from an ethical point of view, but considering it from an implementation point of view. And that basically, <clears throat> if this was to be put... Um, into practice, then, yeah, what happens when the smoker comes forward and says, well, I smoke and I have a lower life expectancy and the obese person comes forward and everybody comes forward and then we have to have a table that uh, works out when you're able to get the pension because of all the different life expectancies. Um, And then that's actually not the right way to think about it. And and 
you add to that, there's different um, components of being indigenous. So what's fascinating, in the 80s, people tried to deny any indigenous heritage. It was sort of frowned upon. Being yeah. a convict or indigenous wasn't great. Whereas now having some convict heritage or being able to trace any indigenous lineage is, is quite exciting. But where does that, you know, is there percentages? <laughs> do we have to do DNA tests? Where does it, the, the implementation's extraordinary. Is it ethical? Leave all of that aside, just to finish this off, is how how do you treat this under uh, an ethical framework? So so the framework I would use, you you know, let's say you use utilitarianism, greatest good for the greatest number, doesn't really fit. I I would use uh, justice theory. So this is where the, the benefits and obligations fall on people fairly. Now, fair can be equality. So is it equal? But fair can also be based on need. So, uh, for example, at the shopping centre, well, you have car parks. Now, you could have an equal for everyone, but we actually put the, the best car parks at the front, make it for disabled people or mums with kids in prams because they have a greater need and they need more access. In this case, I'm going to call it justice theory. I'm going to take a, a needs-based approach. These people have been excluded. It's been hard to work in the regular economy. Their health is poorer as a result, and therefore there is a greater need. So yes, it's yeah. the right thing. And this one makes it, it makes it a wicked problem. You can look at the ethical frameworks, you can look at justice theory and say, yes, you can consider the implementation and say, oh, Pandora's box. Absolutely. So, so and I've taken this a step further. I, I would say yes, ethically, but I would then go, we need to, we can't give this to you as a pension. How can we invest in you in other ways with additional healthcare, additional food funding, additional... Um, employment opportunities or housing allowances. Yeah. There has to be a better way to implement it. But yeah, I think it's ethical. There's not much humour in this podcast, is there? <laughs> uh, okay, a horse walked into a bar <laughs> and the man said, why the long face? <laughs> uh.